I can't tell you how blessed I am and how encouraged I am to look out and see our generations and our cultures gathered here together. Uh, this, is, this is just fantastic to hear the response to the worship of God here in this place and, and to hear it cross-generational. This is the church. People from every nation, tribe, and tongue gathered together in one place. And we're working through kinks. For those of you who are new to us, we've just started this unified service idea last week. So we're, we're working through the things. We're taking your feedback. We are hearing you. Um, and so we're, we're working through some things. But uh, by all means, praise God you're here. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you. It is by your spirit that we are gathered here. It is your work upon our hearts. It is you that we've come to worship. Lord, we praise you for you are worthy of every last bit of worship that we can give to you. You're worthy of all the praise, all the honor, all the glory that we can lift up to you. And I praise you, Lord, that you've drawn us together as a family to do just that. And I pray, Lord, you would be here at work by your Holy Spirit and through your word in our heads and in our hearts. Lord, let that play out in our lives, we pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, I almost titled this sermon, The Impact of Ontological and Economic Trinitarian Theology on Soteriology. But I thought better of that. I guess what I want to get across to you in in such a ridiculous title is just how deep, just how rich the Word of God is. How there's so much for us to know. So we, we can't stop getting to know an infinite, eternal God. How can a finite people stop getting to know an infinite, eternal God, right? Doesn't that just make sense? I want us to know and, and begin to think about how God uses a narrative. A narrative written by John the Apostle. He uses a narrative. He doesn't use a systematic theology book. He uses a narrative as Jesus intertwines statements of his deity along with statements of submission and our salvation. And he brings all these things things together to teach us something about the deep and rich nature of God. Specifically about the triune nature of God and how he works through that triune nature to affect our salvation. While the Spirit of God is uh, certainly, uh, is of course a part of this Trinitarian package, today we're going to focus on, just like our passage does, on the doctrine of the Trinity as it is expressed to us through God the Father and Jesus Christ, who is both the Son of God and the Son of Man. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 5. We'll pick up where we left off last week. John chapter 5. We'll start actually in verse 16 and read through verse 30. John chapter 5. Let's stand up for the reading of God's Word. Starting at verse 16, it says, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, 
Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son, of, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The reading of God's word. Go ahead and be seated. Thank you. So the Jewish religious leadership had a problem with Jesus, didn't they? Verses 16 to 18, it says, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Jesus claimed in an unmistakable way That he is God in the flesh. Don't let anyone ever tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. Perhaps he didn't expressly say the words, I am God. At least it's not recorded for us. But his contemporaries never mistook his claims for anything less than his claiming to be equal to the Father. This is the very reason the Jewish leadership persecuted him and were seeking to kill him. They interpreted his claims as blasphemy. How dare this Jesus, this man, consider himself to be equal to God? So the question is, was he crazy? Is he crazy or is he God, equal to the Father? Can Jesus' claim to be equal to the Father, can it be legitimate? Can it be true? After all, the scriptures are strongly monotheistic. There is only one God to be feared and worshipped. Exodus 20, verses 2 through 3, this is from the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. About Isaiah 46, 
8 through 9. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Or how about the Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. All monotheistic comments, aren't they? There's one God. What we need to carry away from these verses is just that. There is only one God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. But while these words are clear throughout Scripture, including the New Testament where Paul says, 1 Corinthians 8, 4, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. While all of these statements are clearly monotheistic, that there is only one God, they do not tell us everything about the nature of that one God, do they? There's one God, but what, what is the essence of God and, and what he is? He says there's none like me in, in Isaiah, but if he's not like anything or anyone in creation, what is he like? What is he like? And actually, one of the verses we just looked at does begin to open the door for us to, to, to get a glimpse of the wonder of the nature of God. That's Deuteronomy 6.4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, there is a Hebrew word for one. And that Hebrew word is yahid, which means unique or one of a kind. Well, this is not that word. The word used in Deuteronomy 6.4 is another word that Hebrew uses for one. And that word is ehad, which is a composite unity. God is one. He is a composite Unity, like a cluster of grapes, for lack of a more equivalent example. Let's say something like three grapes in a single cluster, or three persons in a single Godhead. Each person distinct, but of the same essence. And as we examine all the pages of Scripture, we begin to see these glimpses here and there throughout the pages of the Bible, to, and, and we begin to see this multifaceted nature of the one God who speaks of himself from the very beginning in both the plural and the singular. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Do you see it go from the plural to the singular there? Languages of us and our, and then in the one singular image of God, the man was created in that one image. The image of that one God who speaks of himself in the plural. The idea that God is more than we can imagine has been introduced to us from the start, the Hebrew name for God, Elohim, is itself plural. It is one name in a plural form. 
Much like what we see in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, at the Great Commission, when Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, one name, of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus tells us, Go and baptize people in the one singular name of all three people of the triune God, all three persons of the triune God. So back to our passage here, verses 21 to 23. Jesus says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. He claims equality to the Father. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus claims equality to God very, very clearly here. And there are certain attributes, there are certain authorities and certain abilities that belong to God alone. There are things that only God can be, only God can do. Only God can give life. He's the one who breathed life into mankind at the very beginning. Judgment, particularly eschatological judgment or the judgment at the end times and and the forgiveness of sins, it belongs to God alone. And no one, no one is worthy of the same honor as God is. So if Jesus is going to claim these abilities and attributes, if he's going to claim deity itself and the honor that comes with it, we had better see some evidence in him, hadn't we? We'd better see some evidence in him that his claims are true. Can Jesus give life? Well, we will see in the months ahead as we get into John chapter 11, Jesus raises the dead. We'll read of how Jesus raises dead Lazarus by his own command. He doesn't ask the Father to do it. Jesus says for Lazarus to come out of the tomb, and Lazarus comes out of the tomb. Jesus gives life. Can Jesus judge and forgive sin? Well, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, recounts for us a time when a paralytic was brought to Jesus, and Jesus heals The paralytic. Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 5, it says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't say, Son, I heal you. He says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming! Considering himself equal to God, able to do things that only God can do, right? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. 
Jesus forgave the man's sins entirely. And then backed up his statement. He backed up his judgment of forgiveness. He confirmed his words and his right to judge in this way with power. With a miraculous healing that no one else could do. To say nothing about the fact that he knew in his spirit what his dissenters were thinking about him at the moment. He had insight and perception that God alone can have because God alone knows the hearts of men. Now, what greater honor can someone receive than worship, right? Worship. Jesus was worshiped as a child by wise men from the East who understood him to be worthy of worship from their own study of the Old Testament scriptures. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus says, It is written that you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then ten chapters later, he receives the worship of his disciples after they see his power over creation. And having witnessed the power of the resurrection, we read in John chapter 20 that Thomas answers Jesus' resurrected power and presence by calling him, my Lord and my God. It wasn't just like we say today, oh my Lord, oh my God, right? Like like a curse, a, a vain use of the word God. No, Thomas was saying, my Lord and my God right here before me. The Word of God regularly rejects worship of anyone except for God. No one is to be worshipped except for God. It's expressly stated in all of those monotheistic verses that we read earlier in the Ten Commandments and going on from there. But never in the Word is worship of Jesus turned away or chastised, except by those who don't understand who Jesus is. So why wouldn't the word of God chastise worship of Jesus? As God prophesied through Isaiah the prophet, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God's word does not admonish Jesus' worship because Jesus is mighty God. Here on the earth, here in the flesh, he is worthy of the same honor as the Father receives. God's word is rich and deep. Here's something that may not stand out right away, but I just love this this aspect of John's account, how he shows us the godly authority that that Jesus carried himself with and that he spoke with. Did you notice in this passage here how Jesus says the words, truly, truly? He says, truly, truly, and he says it three times in these verses. The words in the original language are, amen, amen, I say to you, or amen, amen, lego humin in the Greek. This word, amen, It's a special word. This word amen was used by the people to affirm the words of God. 
If you get a chance later, look up Deuteronomy chapter 27. And you'll see God gives a command and the people say, Amen. God speaks, the people say, Amen. When God gave a command or the people heard the words of God, they would say, Amen. These are the words of God. In other words, God has said it. I need to receive it. Amen. And here Jesus uses this word twice over. Amen, amen. And he doesn't do it to affirm the words after they've been spoken, but he uses it as a device of authority. Before he even says it, amen, amen. Jesus is saying, my words are the words of God. When I speak, you hear the voice of God. And I can affirm this before the words even come out of my mouth. Take it to heart. Amen, amen. Jesus shows us in in both power and word that he has the attributes, he has the authority, and he has the abilities of God Almighty. And we could examine so many other passages, so many other verses that, that show us this from when he calms a storm and shows his authority over creation in that way, all the way to, to where he, he takes a few fish and a few loaves and he breaks them, and all of a sudden there's enough food after he prays to feed over 5,000, well over 5,000 people. Because Jesus can create ex nihilo from nothing just as the Father. And if we see, if we look at the Father and we look at the Son, and we see both deity and personality in the Father, and we see deity and personality in the Son throughout Scripture, then we need to receive just what God is telling us about himself, don't we? That that God's ontological existence, his being, is triune in nature. Father, Son, and Spirit. Again, we're not including the Spirit in this today, but regarding the Son, Jesus says, verses 26 and 27, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man. That's a a wonderful title. It's a twofold title. It's a title that def- certainly describes Jesus' humanity as the Son of Man, right? But it also brings to mind a prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where it says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This Son of Man comes from heaven and he has all of the authority and the eternal sovereignty of God. He is God in the likeness of man. Colossians 2.9, For in him, Christ Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The Son of God has always existed co-equal to the Father in power and attributes eternal and infinite, in being and perfection. But you know what? 
he did not consider the honor of his glory, all that he was, all that he should be looked upon and seen as. He he didn't consider the honor of his glory, his possessed equality with God, as more important to himself than you are. And so he humbled himself. Philippians chapter 2. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, The word form is very important. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The word for form in this passage is is the Greek word for morphe, which means the the very stuff of. Having the same attributes, the same character and essence of. So Jesus, Christ Jesus, who though he was the very stuff of God, did not count his equality with God a thing to be held on to, but gave up his glory and took on the form of a servant. On an ontological level, in his being and in his nature, God eternally exists as three persons, co-equal in nature, attributes, and glory in a single Godhead. But economically, that is to say in how he operates, God works through what we call a state of functional subordination. In other words, in order to accomplish something, In order to accomplish our salvation, namely, the Son willingly submitted to the will of the Father. Verses 19 through 20 in our passage today. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Also look at verse 30 with me. I can do, verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus humbled himself. This is not because he is a lesser part of the Godhead, but the Son submits to the Father in order to accomplish a shared goal within the Godhead. And that goal is you. You, redeemed and restored to a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus is going to accomplish after a three-year ministry that leads him to the cross. Look at verses 24 and 25 with me. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. We have all sinned and fall short of God's glory and absolute perfection. In our sin, we are spiritually dead. We are unresponsive to God and His will. We are enemies of God, diametrically opposed to everything He stands for. 
and we deserve to die. To be separated from God forever. That's death. This is the the definition of hell. It's a very real place that is utterly void of the goodness and the presence of God. With all the suffering and pain that Jesus describes, as darkness, weeping, and gnashing of teeth, just wishing that we could experience some amount of the presence of God again in some small way, that's hell. And apart from Jesus Christ, this is our end. But in Jesus Christ, by faith in him, truly, truly, our sins can be forgiven, washed away, because he paid for them. He paid for them, he paid the price for our sins in our place when he died at the cross. He took our sins and our punishment on himself Even though he was sinless and had no sin of his own, he took it all on himself so that we could live, so that we could pass from death to life, joining him in resurrection life. But how does understanding all this make a difference in my salvation? How is the truth of Jesus' claim to be God important in the scheme of things, really. I mean, why, why bother with this? How does my knowledge of the triune nature of God affect how I'm saved? And why would Jesus even bother to bring this into the picture if he's just going to rile people up, right? I'll give you four ways that the deity of Christ fundamentally and indispensably impacts our salvation. Efficacy. Efficacy, its, it's effect perfection, justice, and truth. Efficacy, perfection, justice, and truth. We've talked about the efficacy of Jesus' sacrifice before. Jesus, being a man, made an equivalent sacrifice for humankind, right? Man for man, flesh for flesh. Jesus, being God, provides a sacrifice for us of infinite, eternal value. The value of one finite man is one finite man. Who's he going to die for, right? He'd have to pick somebody. But add to that sacrifice the value of infinite eternal God, and you have a sacrifice suddenly that that can cover the sins of everyone for all time, past, present, and future. Anyone who would receive him by faith. If you remove that deity, that deity of Jesus then you remove his ability to, as the author of Hebrews says, to taste death for everyone. Now, if all mankind is born in sin, if all flesh is conceived with sin in us, it again becomes necessary that the Savior be God in the flesh, doesn't it? So that the sacrifice at the cross would be perfect, The whole sacrificial system says time and again that the the sacrifices to be made must be perfect. They would have to be without blemish or imperfection, right? It's got to be without sin of his own. We all have sin, but sin is passed down to us from a father to their children. It was Adam who was responsible for the sin in the garden. 
If we were to look and read Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, and verses 17 to 19, we would see a couple things. We'd see it was because of Adam that their eyes were opened. Eve ate, handed it to Adam. Adam eats, then their eyes were opened. It's Adam's fault. The responsibility lay with him. And when God dealt out their punishment, if you look at the punishment of the serpent, you look at the punishment of Eve, and you look at the punishment of Adam, when God dealt out their punishment, it was because of Adam that the earth was cursed. And it was because of Adam that death enters the world. Romans chapter 15 verse 12 reiterates this for us. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. However, having God as his father, being the second person of triune God, Jesus inherited no sin. He is perfect. And he presents a perfect sacrifice. In his perfection, he could shoulder the weight of our sin in our place without having to die for his own sin first. The deity of Christ makes his sacrifice infinitely and eternally effective, makes his sacrifice perfect and without sin, and it makes his sacrifice just. I'm going to get a little philosophical here. You see, if Jesus was simply a man, not God in the flesh, and, and that man was born with no prior knowledge or insight as to why he was being born, and, and He had no idea that God planned on making him go to a cross to die for all mankind, laying the guilt and sin of everyone on his shoulders. And this man, let's just say hypothetically, this man had never done anything wrong. He had no sin in his life whatsoever, which we know is hypothetical because it's just not possible unless he's God in the flesh, right? But let's just say, If God told this innocent man one day, you're going to go to a cross, that's why I made you, by the way, so I could undeservedly punish you. Good luck with that. I'm going to punish you for everybody else's sin, even though you have no sin of your own. There would be an element of injustice in that plan. There would be something unethical. But God is not unjust and he is not unethical. The man, given no option, no choice in the matter, having the plan of God forced upon him, who did not deserve to die, it wouldn't be right. But, if the triune God developed this plan of salvation in unity together, and the Son voluntarily took on the task of being born in the flesh in order to give up that flesh for us, knowing full well all that it meant, and being God, co-equal in the whole thing, neither forced nor coerced, but part of the whole thing, then God, providing the salvation for us in and through himself, making, makes him both just and the justifier of all flesh, all mankind, doesn't it? God is just. And God is true. He always tells the truth. If he says something, 
it's going to be true. And there are many passages, many prophecies that indicate the deity of our Savior, the deity of the Messiah. We already read Isaiah 9, 6, that the child would be called Mighty God. Kind of hard to get around that one. Isaiah 7, 14, he tells us that he would be Emmanuel, which means God with us, yeah. Again, kind of hard to get around that one. We could look at Micah chapter 5, verse 2. We could look at Psalms and other places that tell us the Messiah, the Christ, in order to be the Christ and in order to fulfill all these prophecies, he must be God in the flesh. If God is true, that's the way it's got to be because that's what he said. If he isn't God, if this man is not the Son of God, then he doesn't fulfill the Old Testament prophecies. And he isn't the Savior, and our hope is hopeless. But it's not hopeless. Because he not only claimed this truth, he showed us. He showed himself to be God in the flesh in both word and deed, and ultimately in his resurrection from the dead, the promise of our hope. Verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. As we hear these words, we need to understand we all fall into that category of those who have done evil. And the good that Jesus speaks of here, the only good that can save us is the good that Jesus has done for us at the cross and in his resurrection. If you receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, when God looks at you, when the Father looks upon you, then he will see the good that Jesus has done in your behalf. He will see your sins washed away, covered in a righteousness not your own. He will see a righteousness that you have by faith in Jesus Christ. Do good. Believe on the name of Jesus Christ and by faith in his name receive the everlasting life that only he can provide you with. And then transformed in your heart and your mind begin to walk in the good things and the good deeds that God has prepared beforehand that we might walk in those things as a fruit, as a response of our faith and salvation in Jesus Christ. Christians, strive to know the depths. Strive to understand the riches of the grace of God that has been shown to us in Jesus Christ. He's, he's told us about himself in his word on purpose, that we might know him, that we might understand just how awesome he is. Take advantage of the, the next session of, of Bible Training Center. Dig into God's word. Get to know who he is. Read God's word. Study it. He wants us to know him. God doesn't stand aloof and apart and say, good luck. He wrote that we would know him. He speaks to us through his word that we would know him and be in awe of who he is. One God to be worshipped and magnified who exists from eternity past in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
working in unity to affect our salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for the wonder of who you are and that you would condescend to speak to us in a way that we can, we can begin to understand who you are. Lord, we praise you for Jesus Christ. We praise you for his humanity and his deity that provides the perfect sacrifice for us, Lord, that you are so far beyond our understanding, so far beyond our comprehension, and yet you bring yourself to us in a way that we can begin to comprehend and we can know who you are and we can have salvation. Thank you. We praise you. And we honor you in Jesus' name. Amen.